Chapter 15 of The Life of Oscar Wilde by Robert Sherard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 15 When one contemplates the spectacle afforded by this man of genius, endowed with gifts which made for the pride and joy of the nation, and which in this sense were part of the imperial inheritance, it must fill many with regret that we do not live in England under the sway of a sagacious and benevolent autocrat. If, as from the evidence that is now before us, appears patent, there were times in Oscar Wilde's life when his conduct, his utterances, his demeanour must have revealed to any but the most superficial observer that the man was not entirely responsible at certain times and under certain influences, what a subject for regret must it ever be that no authority there was which, able to disregard the democratic clamour of the absolute right of man to complete personal liberty, could have imposed upon him a necessary wholesome and politic restraint. Had Louis the Fourteenth been living as autocrat of England, or even Napoleon, and had there raised itself in the centre of London a beneficent Bastille, what grander use could there ever have been for the discreet lettre de cachet which for a time would have put the man under that salutary restraint which afterwards, under tragic circumstances, worked in his whole organism a reformation so astonishing and so splendid. But, alas, we live under a democratic government, with all the incoherences which must proceed from the association of two ideas, democracy and government, so antagonistic. We profess such respect for the liberty of the individual that we complacently look on at the antics of the partially demented until some act is committed which puts him within the grasp of the law. We then punish him for a crime which is our own, and, accomplices before the fact, we force him to bear the responsibility which is entirely ours. It is painfully illogical, but where the mob is allowed to interfere in matters of government, nothing else is to be expected. In Oscar Wilde's case, things happened as they do in democratic governments. His intermittent insanity, stimulated by the worst influences, led him to acts which at last enabled the authorities to move, and that restraint was put upon him which applied in another fashion would have preserved to England one of the men most fitted to serve her in the field of intellectual delight. The criminal law interfered at last, and great scandal was thereby caused, which could have been avoided by a Monsieur de Sartine, or other public interferer, acting in the general interests of the public and the private interests of the man, if our common sense allowed of the employment of an official so useful. Various causes contributed to the gust of horror by which the unhappy man, after these exposures, was swept over into the bottomless abyss. 
for centuries past the promptings of his insanity have been invested in the public mind at least as far as england and her english-speaking colonies are concerned with all the dread that acts of sacrilege inspire when in the reign of queen elizabeth the secular courts took over from the ecclesiastical tribunals the estimate of criminality and the punishment of offenders there were thus transmitted for all their rigours three classes of offence for which the church had a special designation not to be heard by ears polite of these heresy was one and usury another we have lived down the horror that heresy used to inspire and we no longer those of us who are of the established church desire to see nonconformist ministers burned at any stake and as to usury which term covers banking and other financial operations we have grown in england to look upon the pursuit of this as one of the most desirable and respectable professions that a man can follow yet in the times of queen elizabeth the practice of heterodoxy and such financial methods as flourish today were acts of sacrilege and inspired people with the horror of such the hatred which suddenly blazed forth against wilde in the masses of the people proceeded from this instinctive horror of sacrilegious acts one must go back to the middle ages to the times when the odium theologicum burned most fiercely to find any such outbreak of public indignation against a single man contributory causes were the detestation in which society held the writer who had so mercilessly exposed its follies pretences and vices the long-harboured rancour of the calvinists to whom wilde had given mortal offence by his audacity in teaching that life was a very good thing that the world was full of pleasures and that the man lived most wisely who most enjoyed all the good things that human existence can afford the personal enmity of a great number of people provoked by a variety of motives none honourable nor worthy but all human amongst the indifferent the satisfaction at the man's removal was akin to that which the owl of whom gray writes in his elegy may have felt when its complaints to the moon had been heard and the cause of them had been suppressed there is much of the moping owl in a large section of our stolid britishry and people of that category dislike nothing more intensely than the man of radioactivity who bustles into the stagnant area of their gelid dullness and interferes with their somnolent eupepsia to be forced to think to be forced to laugh to be taught things in one word to be interfered with no 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 away with him in the official classes the judicial and police authorities the feeling against the man was one of intense exasperation at his folly in provoking an inquiry an official of the home office said at the time quote, there are on the books at scotland yard upwards of twenty thousand persons belonging to the better classes in london alone who are watched by the police but who are not interfered with because they do not themselves provoke investigation Unquote. 
The spectacle of men dealing out what it pleases them to call justice is at no time an inspiriting one. The simian grotesqueness of man never more clearly nor burlesquely manifests itself than in those attitudes which he considers the fullest of dignity, and in those functions in which he feels that he is raising himself above the very low level on which creation has placed him. It does not come within the province of this book to record otherwise than in the most perfunctory manner these repulsive proceedings. The attitude of the accused man is, however, of psychological interest, and it will be necessary to follow him to some extent through the period where law and justice were, to use one of their stock phrases, dealing with him. Being one night close upon intoxication, and being urged on by a person who had a great and pernicious influence with him, Oscar Wilde in March 1895 laid an information for criminal libel against the Marquess of Queensbury. That he was irresponsible at the time when he committed what the National Dictionary of Biography calls an act of fatal insolence is very clearly shown by his own appreciation of his conduct, when a healthy regime had once more triumphed over his insanity. In De Profundis, we find the following passage referring to this act. Quote, the one disgraceful, unpardonable, and to all time contemptible action of my life was to allow myself to appeal to society for help and protection. To have made such an appeal would have been, from the individualist point of view, bad enough. But what excuse can there ever be put forward for having made it? Of course, once I had put into motion the forces of society, society turned on me and said, Have you been living all this time in defiance of my laws? And do you now appeal to these laws for protection? You shall have those laws exercised to the full. You shall abide by what you have appealed to. The result is, I am in jail. Certainly no man ever fell so ignobly, and by such ignoble instruments, as I did. Unquote. The case against the Marquess of Queensbury commenced at the Old Bailey in the first week of April. Oscar Wilde, the prosecutor, goes down to the court in a brougham with two horses and liveried servants. His psychopathia was at this moment perilously tending towards megalomania and what that portends. His arrogance was superb, and from its resources he drew the wonderful energy and mental activity with which he faced the long cross-examination to which he was put by Edward Carson. Though he talked in such a way as to appall the simple citizens who sat in the jury box, yet his evident superiority in the tawny was so great that by sheer force of his personality and genius he might have carried the day, but for that fatal slip which, occurring at the very end of the encounter, and just as the advocate was about to sit down, brought the whole edifice tumbling about his head. That evening it was communicated to him in a circuitous fashion, but with too apparent explicitness, that his wisest course would be to leave the country. 
he refused to flee. The next day, the prosecution broke down and a verdict of acquittal was pronounced in favour of the Marquess. Steps were immediately taken to secure the arrest of the prosecutor, but such delays occurred, or were purposely allowed to occur, that the warrant was not executed till late in the evening. Oscar Wilde had spent that afternoon in a private sitting room at a hotel, smoking cigarettes, drinking whiskey and soda, and reading now the yellow book and now the evening papers. He evinced neither dismay nor trepidation when the officers entered the room, and on alighting from the cab at Scotland Yard, he had a courteous discussion with one of the detectives about the payment of the cabman. The unconsciousness displayed would not have deceived a mental pathologist for one moment as to his mental state and consequent irresponsibility. Arrested on 5th of April and lodged in Holloway on the following day, he spent 19 days in prison before he was brought to trial at the Old Bailey. During that period, he largely recovered his sanity. His physique was still in an abnormal condition, as the writing of some of his letters shows. It is the writing of a neuropath. In the number for March-April 1905 of the Graphologische Monatschefte, published in Munich, there appeared a study of Oscar Wilde's character as revealed by his handwriting from the pen of a very distinguished Russian lady, the Baroness Isabella von Ungern-Sternberg of Revel. Madame de Ungern-Sternberg is the vice-presidentess of the Paris Graphological Society, and the study is a purely scientific one. It is worthy of the attention of all those who wish to provide themselves with every possible means of arriving at a solution of the formidable problem of Oscar Wilde's mentality. The three pieces of his writing on which she based her study were three letters. Of these, one was written in 1883 to a friend, just after Wilde's departure from Paris. The second was a letter from Holloway Prison, written while he was under remand, and the third was a note written not long before his death. The Baroness's study of Wilde's writing seems to have inspired her with as great an admiration for his character as her reading of Intentions had originally roused her enthusiasm for his talents. A very striking sentence in her estimate of the writing declares, quote, Pathologisch ist in Wilders Handschrift nicht zu finden, auch nicht in der Probe Fig 2, sobald wir ansehen von der begrifflichen Erregung Deutsch Angst und Hoffnung, Krankheit und Krankung. Unquote. This means that there was nothing in his writing to reveal a pathological condition. That is to say, when he was sane, for he does not appear to have written during the paroxysms of his dementia. The specimen referred to is the letter from Holloway. Here there is nothing pathological, but at the same time the writing shows illness. A curious incident may be related in connection with the Baron de Ungern-Sternberg's essay. It so exactly tallied with the opinion which the sister of Nietzsche had formed of Oscar Wilde's character, from her study of his works, and from all that she had heard and read about him, that this distinguished lady became an immediate convert to the scientific truth of graphology. 
he appears to have suffered very greatly during this confinement. Wilde looked careworn and much thinner, is what the reporters remarked about his appearance in the Old Bailey Dock on 26th April. In the letter referred to above, he had spoken of himself in the following terms. I am ill, apathetic, slowly life creeps out of me. The trial ended in a disagreement of the jury. Shortly afterwards, Oscar Wilde was released on bail to await a fresh trial at the next sessions. The amount was fixed at £2,500, of which nearly three-fourths were provided by a young nobleman who was but slightly acquainted with the prisoner, and who realised almost the entire fortune at his command to supply the money. On leaving Holloway Prison, Wilde drove to a hotel where rooms had been engaged for him. As he was sitting down to dinner in his private room, the manager of the hotel came in, shouted out that he knew who he was, and ordered him to leave the house at once. From thence, Wilde drove to another hotel. Here he secured a room, and, dinnerless, for he had no appetite left, was about to go to bed, when again he was driven forth into the streets. Some men, it appeared, had followed him from the gates of Holloway Prison, at whose instigation we need not inquire, and had determined that he should nowhere find shelter that night. They had threatened the manager of the second hotel that if he did not turn Oscar Wilde away, they would wreck his house. He appears to have been refused admission, having been recognised at other London hostelries that night, in the end, he turned his thoughts towards his mother's home. Long past midnight, his brother Willie heard a knock at the door of the house in Oakley Street. When he had opened the door, Oscar Wilde, pale as death, dishevelled, unnerved, staggered into the narrow hall, and, sinking exhausted onto a chair, cried out, "'Willie, give me a shelter, or I shall die in the streets!' Willie Wilde frequently related the incident afterwards, but with a mixing of metaphors which sufficiently indicates the condition into which he was passing. He came, he used to say, tapping with his beak against the window pane, and fell down on my threshold like a wounded stag. To the horrors of that period of waiting, the touch of the grotesque was not to be wanting. He was entirely ruined, if such an expression may be applied to a man who had but to sit down and write in order to earn money. He had no money, his home had been sold up, of personal property he had nothing more than the few clothes and trinkets which he brought with him to Oakley Street. For on his arrest the usual had happened, creditors rushed clamorously to precipitate his downfall. Judgments were signed and executions put in. On the day of the sale, the house in Tite Street was invaded by a motley crowd, amongst which the genuine purchasers were few, the prurient sensation-mongers and the shifty-eyed thieves were many. Many articles were stolen, doors were feloniously broken open. Never was such hammer-sucking perpetrated before with such impunity— here is the account which an Irish publisher gives of his visit to Tite Street during the sale. Quote, 
I went upstairs and found several people in an empty room, the floor of which was strewn, thickly strewn, with letters addressed to Oscar, mostly in their envelopes and with much of Oscar's easily recognisable manuscript. This looked as though the various pieces of furniture which had been carried downstairs to be sold had been emptied of their contents onto the floor. It is usual at sales, of course, for the furniture to be sold in each room as it stands. After I had been in the room some time, a broker's man came up and said, How did you get into this room? What business have you in this room? I said, The door was open and I walked in. Then the man said, Then somebody has broken open the lock because I locked the door myself. It was no doubt from this room that various of Oscar's manuscripts which have never been recovered were stolen. There were the scenarios of one or two comedies, a whole poetic drama, The Woman Covered with Jewels, and the manuscript of a work entitled The Incomparable and Ingenious History of Mr. W.H., being the true secret of Shakespeare's sonnets, now for the first time here fully set forth. This manuscript had been in the hands of Messrs. Elkin Matthews and John Lane, who had already some time previously announced it as being in preparation. On the day of Oscar Wilde's arrest, the manuscript was returned to his house. Nothing has ever been heard of it again. Certainly, after Oscar Wilde's arrest, there was no more opening for a work which was to establish that it was under the influence of an absorbing adoration for Mr. W.H. that Shakespeare wrote his sonnets. It is the only thing that Oscar ever wrote in which he dallied with the abnormal, and perhaps, for his reputation amongst the majority, it is as well that instead of seeing the light of day, this work is resting in the innermost recesses of the cupboard of poisons of some rich literary dilettante. In Blackwood's Edinburgh magazine for July 1889, there appeared an article by Oscar Wilde entitled The Portrait of Mr. W.H., in which he only very faintly indicates the theory to which he was to give such a development in the longer work. It was to form a piece of documentary evidence in support of his plea of the dignity, beauty and advantages of those warm friendships between men, which he uttered in the witness box at the Old Bailey amidst the moved silence even of his enemies. The sale at Tite Street was not a sale. It was the pillage of an unprotected house. People stole with the greatest effrontery. The prices realised for such articles as did come to the hammer were ridiculously low. There was a fine whistler there, said the Irish gentleman referred to above. The picture of a girl with the butterfly signature. I wanted to buy it, but the crowd in the room was so dense that one could not move and I was unable to bid. It was knocked down for six pounds. From his plays there was nothing to be hoped for. His name, immediately after his arrest, had been effaced both on posters and programmes. The withdrawal of the plays was only a question of the time it took for the managers to reconcile interest with outraged feelings. For the rest, he had largely mortgaged his interests in these performances. From his books, there was nothing to receive. The only asset that he possessed was the play Salome, which he had written in French in 1892 and which had been accepted for production by Madame Sarah Bernhardt. Her intention had been to perform it in London, but the Lord Chamberlain's licensor of plays refused to allow its performance. 
It was a biblical piece, and in those days Mr. George Alexander and Mr. Hall Kane had not yet demonstrated the utility of the stage in drawing the public nearer to the great white throne. Oscar Wilde's indignation at this refusal was very great, and he spoke at the time of leaving England and becoming a naturalised Frenchman. If he had followed up his purpose, he would have been living now. While he was in Holloway, having no money for the purposes of his defence, he communicated through a friend with Madame Bernhardt offering to sell her the rights in Salome for a lump sum. The figure he mentioned was about the sixth part of what that poetic piece has already realised in royalties from Germany alone, without counting the sums which it is now producing as libretto in Strauss's opera. Madame Bernhardt missed an excellent investment on this occasion, which as her conduct in this matter was entirely guided by business considerations, may be for her today the subject of some regret. It is not to overestimate the productiveness of Salome to say that anyone who had purchased it in 1895 for two or £3,000 would have invested his money at a thousand percent. But of course, Madame Bernhardt could not foresee that. She shed tears over Oscar Wilde's painful position. She sent him messages of sympathy, and she refused to assist him financially in any way. But for the generosity of Sir Edward Clarke in undertaking to defend him at the Old Bailey without a fee, it seems certain that Oscar Wilde would have been abandoned to the usual resources of poor prisoners. He had come to that. He was a poor prisoner. He might have been the beneficiary of an elimocinary Old Bailey soup. Sir Edward Clarke's sympathy with artists is notoriously not a great one. He was the only man in London who refused to sign the petition that the great Sir Henry Irving should be buried in Westminster Abbey, and this in spite of the fact that they had been schoolfellows together. His principles and convictions must have been outraged by the principles and theories of Oscar Wilde, who of course had no convictions. Yet he very generously undertook to defend him without remuneration. His friends had of course abandoned him, the usual had taken place. It is foolish to expect exceptional conduct from the average. There had been the usual denials. The Atlantic cable was used by one person in his eager haste to repudiate the fallen man and his many obligations to him. The actors took their revenge for that stinging remark about the source of danger. Every door was shut upon the unhappy man. This was perhaps what afflicted him most. In his terrible awakening, what surprised and distressed him beyond anything else was that, quote, people to whom he had been kind and nothing but kind should turn upon him, unquote. There were equally, of course, a few courtesans de la dernière heure, a man of such charm, such generosity and goodness could not but have friends who preferred him in disgrace and shame and peril to the people who turned their backs upon him. There were a few who would gladly have gone to prison in his stead, would gladly have died for him. This is no hyperbole. More than one man since his downfall and ruin did die by his own hand because he could not survive Oscar Wilde's catastrophe. More than a score of men are dragging out a broken life, 
who had not the courage to put an end to sufferings to which time can bring no surcease. It will not be necessary to say that the R of De Profundis, to whom Oscar Wilde pays a beautiful tribute in that book, a tribute worthy of the man's beautiful conduct, was loyal then as ever. And there were two or three others. During the period that he spent in Oakley Street while on bail, Oscar Wilde seemed to have entirely recovered his sanity of mind. His physical condition was, however, deplorable. His nerves were wrecked. He was in fever all the time. He was paying his debt to nature for years of indulgence. He was consumed with burning thirst. One of his friends was running out all day to fetch soda water and lemonade for him. He drank gallons of liquid in the 24 hours. His moral attitude was splendid. He had made up his mind to face the worst. The advisability of flight was urged upon him by one of his friends. He refused to listen to the suggestion. It appears that Lady Wilde had said that if he left the country, she would never speak to him again. But it is certain that the son of Speranza had never seriously entertained the project of showing his heels to a Sassanac judge and jailer. His brother Willie was almost melodramatic in his protestations that a wild would not flee. He is an Irish gentleman and he will face the music, was what he used to repeat with almost tedious insistence. One day he announced that he had decided to sell his library in order to find the funds for sending back to France the particular friend who was the advocate of a discreet evanishment, for he entertained the idea that the reason why that friend did not return home was that he had not the means to do so. By a curious coincidence, one of the very few books which constituted the library was a copy of the essays of that Montaigne, whose remark, quote, were I to be accused of stealing the towers of Notre-Dame, the first thing I should do would be to put the frontier between myself and the Gêne de la Justice, unquote, was being quoted in support of his advice by the friend whose removal he desired. It is very certain that Willie Wilde felt strongly that the honour of the family would be compromised by Oscar's flight. A young Irish poet relates that visiting Oakley Street during that period, quote, Willie came theatrically into the room and said, Who are you? What do you want? I told him who I was, he says, and added that I had a note for Oscar Wilde. Willie then asked, Are you urging him to flee? Because if you are, I won't let him have the note. Unquote. I think, the Irish poet has said since, quote, that the whole family, Irish pride being aroused, felt that the cowardice of running away would be a far greater disgrace than the disgrace of a conviction and imprisonment. For the rest, he adds, prison does not seem such a disgrace in Ireland, and that for historical associations. Unquote. Oscar Wilde's bearing on the night before the last day of his second trial in the supreme moments of his liberty, filled all those who saw him with respect and admiration. His serenity had returned to him. His sweet, gentle dignity had clothed him anew. The tragic horror of the moment had aroused in him the perfect manliness that periods had lulled into apathetic quiescence. He took farewell of his friends. He informed each one of a little gift, from the poor trinkets which remained to him, 
which he had destined as a souvenir in case he did not return home on the morrow. It is very certain that at that moment he felt that if a conviction ensued he would never see any of his friends again, that he felt that he was being tried for his life and that prison would speedily kill him. He retired early from the mournful gathering, saluting by kissing her hand with stately courtliness his brother's wife, whose kindness and sympathy had deeply touched his heart. He spent, before he sought his sleepless couch, a long hour with the mother, deeply loved and deeply honoured, whom he was never to see again. Late in the afternoon of the following day, Saturday 25th May 1895, Oscar Wilde was found guilty and sentenced to two years hard labour. There had been six counts against him. He was asked after his release by a very old friend as to the justice of the finding, and he said, quote, Five of the counts referred to matters with which I had absolutely nothing to do. There was some foundation for one of the counts. But why then, asked his friend, did you not instruct your defenders? That would have meant betraying a friend, said Oscar. Circumstances which have since transpired have established, what for the rest was never in doubt in the minds of those who heard it made, the absolute truth of this statement. When the verdict became known outside the court, a foul rabble, believing that an aristocrat had been condemned, filled the old bailey with shouts of delight. Men and women joined hands and a clumsy saraband was danced. Cruelty, the la civia di sangue, glutted itself. There was a peculiar irony in this bloodlust which everywhere in England found expression, for, as the pathologists affirm, it is a morbid manifestation very directly akin to the aberration to which the prisoner had fallen a victim. From evil, evil is bred. Abyssus abyssum in wocat. The question that presented itself to many, where was our national regard for Jesus Christ as we exulted in the downfall and misery of the man whom we had punished? The clergy held their tongues. The church had nothing to say. The doctors, the men of science, the pathologists, the students and masters of psychology, who could have shown that the man was irresponsible, they were all mute. On the heights there was neither sound nor motion. In the depths, males and females shouted and danced for gladness. What ripples of mocking laughter must run through Olympus if ever the careless gods from their lofty seats do deign to look down upon the world and see what men we are, and what other things we do. End of chapter 15